0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde,
1: And I'm Kate Sheridan.
0: Adam and Meg are off this week.
1: It's Thursday, August 12th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
0: President Biden took his first meaningful action on the issue of drug pricing, laying out a list of proposals designed to cap the cost of medicine in the U.S. STAT Washington correspondent Nicholas Florco joins us to explain the implications.
1: And Shreya Chakradar will look back on her time running STAT's flagship newsletter, Morning Rounds.
0: We'll start with a rundown of the biggest news in biotech this week, but first, a word from our sponsor.
2: Hey, Maria! What you doing? Hey, Danielle! Just reviewing some hot-off-the-press pharmacokinetic data, and thinking about our podcast. You? Oh, not much.
3: Just watching some immune cells destroy cancer cells here on the scope. And, of course, thinking about the podcast.
2: Let's introduce it to everyone. Oh, sure! Well, I'm Maria, and my background is in transcription factors and diabetes, and now I lead molecule teams. And I'm Danielle. I'm just your simple welder mechanic who now deconstructs cancer cells.
3: We are the new hosts for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, the award-winning science podcast from Genentech. Each show,
2: we mix it up with biologists, neurologists, immunologists, all sorts of ologists about the very latest in science.
3: So if you can't get enough of those ologists, grab a beverage and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcast, Or find us at gene.com slash podcast. That's g-e-n-e.com slash podcast.
0: One inescapable thing in the news this week, in fact, there have been more and more relevant news items, it seems like every hour, is the rise of vaccine mandates in the United States, whether it's employers, institutions, or other organizations, basically saying that if you want to show up to work, if you want to come to our establishment, you need to have evidence that you've been vaccinated against COVID-19.
1: Right. We've seen mandates come from Google's parent company, from Tyson Foods. Amtrak the other day announced a mandate for employees. Uh, Even the New York Stock Exchange has said that anyone who wants to be on the trading floor needs to be vaccinated.
0: Right. And it does feel like kind of a a snowballing thing. I think there were a few initial, um, I think, you know, Facebook was one of the early ones. Um, And then it just seems like, you know, minute by minute, there are more announcements. And the interesting thing is, I think a lot of organizations were initially hesitant because of concern about the legality. Basically, because the COVID-19 vaccines are authorized through emergency use by the FDA and not fully FDA approved, that maybe any kind of vaccine mandate would be challengeable in court. So the, you know, the rapid advance of these mandates suggests that people are getting more and more comfortable with that. And then furthermore, it's been reported that the FDA expects to grant full approval to the Pfizer and BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine in September or thereabouts. And one would assume that an approval from Moderna would follow and J&J after that. So it's quite likely that these will cease to be news items. Like at some point it will just become, uh, you know, relatively blasé that there are vaccine mandates.
1: Right. Something that's very expected. Although I will say the one thing about Pfizer is Pfizer also has a vaccine mandate. And to me, that was maybe the one that was particularly weird or droll. It's <laughs> it's their vaccine. You know, I if any was going to be a given anywhere, I assumed it would be there. It's you know, it's it just stuck out to me.
0: Right. You would hope you would hope that the chef is willing to consume his or her own. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, In the Pfizer announcement, they noted that it was employees and contractors. And so I wondered if, you know, That contractor element was maybe where they had seen some reticence or had some concern uh, about an unwillingness to get vaccinated. But it's possible they're just crossing T's and and dotting I's, as it were.
1: What an unexpected effect of the gig economy that would be. (laughs) Exactly.
0: So somewhat related, speaking of COVID-19 vaccines, there was uh, some... Canadian news this week. What happened?
1: There was indeed. On Tuesday, Moderna announced a new deal with the Canadian government to build an mRNA manufacturing facility somewhere in the country in an undisclosed location currently. Uh, This stood out to me, actually, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, of course, it's Moderna, etc., etc. It's also one of a handful of manufacturing investments the Canadian government has made recently. It really rhymes with the deal between Canada and Resilience, which is a manufacturing startup from uh, Arch Venture Partners. But what really piqued my interest here actually was, in fact, the Canadian angle itself. So last winter, Canadians were kind of freaking out a little bit about the company's dearth of vaccine manufacturing capabilities. There were a lot of, I don't want to call them think pieces, but a lot of ink was spilled about the problem. So on top of all of that, those in the know really expect a Canadian federal election to start literally any day, any day now. So these deals kind of feel like part of a Bigger story about Canada that's still developing, and about what biotech there might look like in the future. It's it's a story I've been kind of um, watching for a little while, and it feels like it's kind of picking up speed a little bit too right now.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting. A lot of people kind of looked at this arrangement as something that might be able to be replicated in other countries where vaccine supply is much lower than it needs to be, in part because there aren't manufacturing capabilities. I mean, Canada, obviously a wealthy nation. The global north, I'm not losing too much sleep over with respect to that. But in lower income countries, if if a deal like this could be reached, and, and granted, there's no guarantee of that, um, to produce vaccines in some of the places where they are very, very hard to come by. Um, that could be a massive change in the, you know, as everyone listens to this knows, a pandemic is a global phenomenon. And the fact that we have, uh, you know, a surplus of vaccine doses in the United States doesn't really do much for the cause of eradicating COVID-19 around the world. So it would be interesting to see if, uh, if this is a deal that can be replicated in places where there's a really, really high need.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to see that. I kind of wonder if it's possible, though, because I think Canada is throwing quite a bit of money behind this. And I think that probably doesn't hurt. I've never really quite understood why vaccine manufacturing or manufacturing in general for biotechnology products isn't a thing in Canada. It seems like kind of a no-brainer to me. But then again, I'm not, you know, a biotech executive. I don't know what I'm talking about here. So, (laughs)
0: So looking forward to the future of COVID-19 vaccines, our colleague Helen Branswell had a really fascinating story this week about basically when might we ever get nasal vaccines for COVID-19. The biological case is pretty compelling. The vaccines we have, you get a shot in the arm and your body produces the spike protein and your immune system reacts. However, as we know... COVID-19 is something you will be exposed to in your upper respiratory tract. So a really, really effective vaccine would be one that generates those antibodies there at the point where the virus first gets the chance to infect you. But what was fascinating about the story is while the biological case makes sense and there are uh, intranasal vaccines in the earliest stages of development, the question facing, I guess, society, for lack of a better term, is... Is the best use of finite resources, money and and scientific time, inventing these next generation nasal vaccines? Or is it, as the world seems to have decided, pouring that money into manufacturing the vaccines that we know work right now? Which is just an interesting push and pull.
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it totally makes sense. Again, like you were saying, scientifically, it ought to work. But I don't necessarily know that there is a good answer to this. On the one hand, it sounds like there could be a niche from what our colleague Helen Branswell has written on the subject, but it's a question of risk management, right? Mm -hmm. Really, at the end of the day here, it's do we want to take a risk on something that's unproven or do we want to just try and minimize all risk and, and go with the things that we know?
0: Right. And the other thing is that, you know, one of the lessons of Operation Warp Speed is that when we, we being just like human apparatus, really want to do like a Manhattan Project, we can move heaven and earth. I mean, mRNA vaccines were perceived as somewhat as speculative as we're now talking about nasal vaccines just, you know, 18 months ago or whatever. Um, And then you pour billions of dollars and, you know, focus the resources of an entire very wealthy nation and suddenly, it feels like mRNA vaccines are here to stay. They're reduced to practice. So I think for a lot of people on the scientific side, they're thinking like, well, we could just do this. We could just do this for nasal vaccines. And yes, it would benefit COVID-19, but then it would have, you know, if it works, untold benefits down the road. But, you know, as as we said before, like they are finite resources seemingly. And so that might not be the best use, but you can see why it's tantalizing to people whose life's work is is this science.
1: Well, and just to, just to riff off of that a little bit, I feel like the difference between mRNA and intranasal is... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we knew if mRNA would work or not when things first started to get rolling, right? Whereas it sounded like, from from Helen's article again, that we have some indications that intranasal is is difficult. There have been studies with, as she wrote, disappointing results. I wonder if that's kind of a an important difference and distinction to make here.
0: No, that's a good point. And, and that could be part of it. Whereas yeah, th- there were maybe more breadcrumbs to follow with mRNA, although there is an overlap. You, one can do intranasal mRNA, although I should note that uh, that the clinical evidence there has also been incomplete, is maybe the most generous way to describe it. Mixed. This segment of the podcast will not be complete without a mention of Aduhelm, the controversial biogen treatment for Alzheimer's disease, which was FDA approved in June, setting off a storm of controversy that continues to this day and will perhaps outlive us all. The thing I wanted to talk about though is not directly related to Algehome per se, but rather how investors perceive companies developing treatments for Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, the the sticking point for Algehome is that the FDA decided to approve the drug based on its effect on plaques in the brain, not necessarily on its demonstrated effect on the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And that's led people to assume pretty reasonably that another treatment from Eli Lilly, which works much the same way, will win FDA approval in short order. So that's all fair enough, but it does seem like some magical thinking has set in uh, on Wall Street with respect to basically any company developing a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. So there are two companies that come to mind. One is Cortexime, which has a treatment for Alzheimer's disease based on basically the, uh, I don't know, the gingivitis theory of the disease. People can look this up, but there's data linking uh, bacterial infections to the development of Alzheimer's, and they have a drug that targets that. There's another company called Cassava with a drug with a different mechanism, but the thing that unites them is that they're not related to amyloid, which is what the FDA apparently has signaled is an approvable endpoint. And yet those companies' stock prices have risen two to threefold in recent months, basically on the idea that the FDA will approve any treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And I mean, it's just a phenomenon, I guess, to keep uh, an eye on this year because there is this speculative boom in Alzheimer's that seems to have departed from measurable reality with respect to what gets approved in this country.
1: I mean- Damien, I joked, I think, the other day that I'm not gonna believe that investors buy the gingivitis theory of Alzheimer's until Oral B starts becoming a biotech company. But <laughs> it's an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon and it does make a certain amount of sense, right? If this drug gets approved, then why wouldn't that drug get approved? It's as you say, it's they're different cases, but I see the logic. I don't necessarily know if I would follow it myself, but I see it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally see that point. And for people looking forward, at least with Cortexyme, we will have an answer relatively shortly. The company expects data from a phase three study in November. So that will be the big proving ground for whether gingivitis and Alzheimer's or targeting gingivitis can uh, actually slow the progression of Alzheimer's. So we'll find out.
1: Didn't you say something about how the stu- that study was looking at cognition? It wasn't looking at amyloid at all?
0: Right, so th- that's the thing. The primary endpoints of the Cortexime study are cognition and function. So that needs to actually demonstrate an effect on Alzheimer's disease. Although, you know, that being said, the primary endpoint of of the biogen study that that led to FDA approval uh, was cognition, and and it didn't work, and it got approved anyway. So, it, it, it in fairness to the investors who have bid up these stock prices, we are living in interesting times.
1: President Biden has finally taken some meaningful action on the issue of drug prices, calling on Congress to allow Medicare to directly negotiate the price of medicines and cap out of pocket costs for
0: seniors. Biden laid out his proposal in a speech on Thursday morning. Let's listen to a clip.
3: What we're proposing is that we'll negotiate a base, negotiate with the company based on a fair price, one that reflects the cost of the research and development and the need providing for a significant profit, but that's still affordable for consumers.
1: The Biden proposal ends months of speculation as to just how aggressive the White House would be on the matter of pharmaceutical industry reforms. And it comes right as Democrats prepare to defend their narrow congressional majority in 2022. Joining us to talk about it is Stat Washington correspondent Nicholas Florco. Nick, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Nick, for starters, what did we learn on Thursday? What is what is in the Biden proposal?
2: So the proposal in Biden's plan, I mean, shouldn't surprise anyone who's been following the Biden campaign or or really any mainstream Democrats drug pricing positions. Just to go through it quickly, you all already touched on some of the issues. There's this proposal to allow Medicare to directly negotiate over drug prices, penalizing drug makers who raise their prices faster than inflation, capping how much seniors can pay out of pocket each year for drugs, working with states and tribes to import lower cost prescription drugs from Canada And then accelerating the development of generics and biosimilars so nothing again particularly crazy in these policies but if they were implemented they definitely would shake up the drug industry
1: so a lot of these reforms have been popular among democratic lawmakers for years but disagreements over policy details have kept them from moving forward so what effect might biden's endorsement have on actual legislation
2: so the idea here is really that this will light a fire under congress to actually pass these policies the context here is important. Congress is just starting to craft a massive government spending package, which top Democrats like Bernie Sanders and Ron Wyden, who chairs the, the Senate Finance Committee, uh, have said should include drug pricing reforms. So having Biden's buy-in at the start of that process really does give momentum to that push. But in reality, it's it's really all up to Congress on whether they actually deliver on these promises. And it could be an uphill battle. I mean, in the Senate, there's a razor thin majority and there are certain Democrats, folks like New Jersey's Bob Menendez, who are wild cards on issues like Medicare negotiation. This is a relatively mainstream platform, but there's still very, very little margin for error.
0: And so, yeah, as you mentioned, this is all happening with the midterm elections rapidly approaching. And as our colleague Rachel Kors reported this week, a lot of these proposals are are very popular in sort of a, a broad sense in the United States. And a handful of vulnerable Senate Democrats seem to think that Drug pricing reform can help them keep their seats next year. So how might all of this shape 2022?
2: Well, I mean, there's no doubt that Democrats campaigned on lowering prescription drug prices and, and they run the town right now. I mean, they hold the House, they hold the Senate, they hold the White House. So in much the same way that Senate vulnerable Democrats think they can win if they get drug pricing done, I think it's also fair to say that you'd expect that voters will start to ask what gives if we get to the midterms and there's no movement on prescription drug legislation. I mean, it's it's pretty clear this will be a campaign issue. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, over the last six months, you've actually seen quite a few big political groups in DC that focus on healthcare really start to focus specifically on drug pricing as a campaign issue. I mean, just to give one really quick example, there's a group in town called Protect Our Care, which spent the last year basically campaigning on defending the Affordable Care Act. Well, the last several years, really. And they launched a seven figure campaign. Uh, This year focused on the need for prescription drug reform, and they're targeting a number of battleground states where Democrats, frankly, currently hold seats. So places like New Hampshire and New Jersey. And so it's clear there's a sustained effort to make drug pricing a 2022 campaign issue and to push Democrats even from within the Democratic Party to support these issues.
1: So this is kind of a hard pivot. But while we have you, we should really talk about the state of the FDA This week, you published a story about how the roiling debate over the FDA's decision to approve Adjahelm, Biogen's debatably effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease, has cast a spotlight on some previously in the weeds agency policy called accelerated approval. Basically, critics argue that the agency system for fast tracking new drugs has gone too far. Do you think they have a point?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, I'm not going to take a stand because that would be a dangerous (laughs) proposition, but it really depends on where you sit. I mean... I think it's fair to say that critics of accelerated approval have found a particularly helpful example for making their point in Agrelm. I'm um, just to give a little bit of background here and I'll make it brief. I mean there's always been a healthy debate over the accelerated approval pathway at the FDA which basically allows the FDA to approve drugs based on intermediate measures so what are known as surrogate endpoints things like the ability to shrink a tumor rather than a hard clinical evidence of effectiveness like whether a drug has been proven to help a patient live longer. And critics of the program have said for quite a while that basically it gives the FDA the blessing or it gives, it gives the FDA the ability to give drug makers the blessing to sell largely unproven drugs, often that are very costly to dying patients. And critics of the program say that the FDA's decision to approve Agilhelm based on its ability to clear amyloid plaques is a key, a key example of the problems with accelerated approval because As I'm sure listeners know, there's already a very healthy debate over whether clearing amyloid plaques actually provides meaningful clinical benefit for patients suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And if you couple that with the fact that the drug costs $56,000 a year, you have a pretty powerful example to make your point about the downsides of the program.
0: So finally, Nick, we cannot have you on the podcast without a time-honored discussion about the lack of a permanent FDA commissioner, which pervades to this day. It came up yet again this week. um, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that Biden is, quote, not going to take a step to put forward a nominee until he's found exactly the right person. End quote. And as we know, meanwhile, Janet Woodcock, the acting FDA commissioner, will have no choice but to resign in November if she doesn't turn out to be that exact right person, I guess. So What's going on?
2: Well, I will say at the top that anybody who tells you exactly what's going on uh, and doesn't work in the West Wing is probably lying to you. I mean, this week, D.C. was ablaze with rumors that that Zeke Emanuel, the bioethicist, was in the running for the commissioner position. And then the White House quickly shot that down, saying point blank that he was not in the running for the position. So it's basically a mess. I mean, it's dangerous to make predictions in this town, but I'll give you my theory of what's going on. So. As we already talked about, Biden is calling on Congress to get a massive spending package done, which includes drug pricing reforms. That effort really depends on a few key Democrats because, as we said, there's a razor-thin majority in the Senate. Well, it turns out that some of those very important senators also oppose Janet Woodcock. And those, frankly, are people that the Biden administration can't afford to alienate right now. So my theory, and this is just my theory, is that we don't see any movement on FDA commissioner until after this massive spending package is done. After the Biden administration gets what it wants from those Democrats, after that, I bet we at least start to see the Biden administration saying more about the FDA. Stop being so cryptic about what is going on. Because frankly, right now, saying anything runs the risk of alienating voters on these key issues. And by voters, I actually mean senators. Uh, And wasting political capital right now is something the Biden administration just can't do. So, I mean, basically stay tuned. I think. Ask me the question in October and November, and hopefully I'll be able to give you a uh, a more satisfactory answer. Right now, it just seems like the Biden administration realizes that they they lose if they say anything.
1: Gotcha. Will do, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of thousands of people wake up every day to Stat's Morning Rounds newsletter in their inboxes. Since 2019, Shraddha Chakradar has been the heart of that newsletter.
0: But Shraddha's last Morning Rounds newsletter went out on Wednesday. She'll be leaving Stat to join Harvard's Neiman Journalism Lab as a deputy editor later this summer.
1: But she's here with us now to talk about her work and her time here at Stat. Shraddha, welcome back to the podcast. Thank
3: you so much for having me.
0: So maybe first, artists, take us behind the scenes a bit. What happens? What is the process that goes into it before people actually see? morning rounds in their inboxes so early each morning?
3: Oh, goodness. So um, I used to (laughs) write any given day's morning rounds newsletter on the day before. So um, today I would have been working on tomorrow's um, newsletter. Um, So the bulk of the work is actually done Ahead of time, Uh, you know, I get lots of press releases into my uh, in my inbox. Uh, I keep track of embargoed research that might coincide with the time that Morning Rounds goes out, which is six a.m. Eastern on weekdays. Any news that emerges uh, as the day goes on, uh, stories from Stat reporters, so all of that gets collected and curated, and uh, I write up six short items. And what happens is I would, and now uh, our new Morning Rounds writer Liz Cooney will, but would wake up at 5 a.m., do a quick scan to make sure that there's no breaking news uh, from overnight, Uh, make sure all the links are working, uh, check to see if there are any interesting reads to include in the what to read around the web section. And then I would uh, send it out at 6 a.m.
1: I was trying to figure out how many newsletters you had actually written over the years. There must have been at least like 500 or so over two and a half years, right?
3: Yes, I uh, I have a separate folder in my uh, mail uh, inbox for just Morning Rounds newsletters. And uh, that was about 700 or so, like a little over 700. Mind you, I was on leave earlier this year um, for about three months. So my guess is somewhere between uh 600 and 650 newsletters
1: how on earth did you decide what goes into those 700 newsletters every morning
3: uh well it's it's a team effort for sure um you know i worked with my editor sarah mubo uh very closely on deciding what should be in any given day's lineup but i paid attention to past coverage for instance you know my predecessor megan thiel king Uh, she wrote a lot about e-cigarettes and, um, you know, Jewel in the newsletter, for example. So I knew it was a topic that Morning Round's readers would be familiar with. So anytime there were major developments in that arena, that would be something that I knew to include. Of course, big developments coming out of D.C. was something I knew to include. But for the past year and a half now, I guess, coronavirus has been uh raining all coverage and so it was just um it was kind of a no brainer that we pivoted to having uh the first item in the news that are always be something covid specific and sometimes it was also multiple items beyond just that top item and uh, beyond that it was sort of what was interesting to me. I figured if I found it interesting, if I found it important, then my readers would find it important as well. And no one complained about the coverage of topics. So I I think that was, uh, I think that was a good instinct to follow, I guess. Always a good sign.
0: So I was curious, is there a particular, you know, morning at five or just a particular edition of the newsletter that you feel like you'll, you'll never forget?
3: It was always fun to do the uh, Nobel season newsletters because those get announced at uh, 4 or 5 a.m. Eastern anyway. And it was usually a team of us that was up. And I particularly enjoyed it be- So that because I wasn't the only one that was up because Sarah, my editor, would be up. And then whichever reporter was going to be writing a story off of the news was also up. And so it was nice to, you know be in this huddle, um, in the, uh, wee hours of the morning to decide. Um, I mean, obviously the physiology or medicine award was, a, a, a guaranteed thing that we would write about, but to wait and see whether the chemistry or physics awards had anything to do with biomedicine so that we could include it in the newsletter. So I particularly enjoyed, um, those editions when I got to do them, which is October, I guess, of the past two years. So on top of your work on the
1: newsletter, you've also written tons of other stories for STAT. Which are you most proud of?
3: One particularly memorable experience, and I guess I'm really proud of it, is um, Casey Ross, one of our health tech writers, and I uh, gave up our Thanksgivings in 2019 because we had heard about the release of new documents related to Purdue Pharma, and it's a story that STAT has been following for several years, and um, I'm from Kentucky, as um, some of your listeners and Morning Rounds readers may know, and, uh, you know, Casey is based in Ohio and i was i remember i was here in the stat newsroom and uh, uh some of the senior editors were talking about it and i just volunteered to go help casey and literally i was here until noon and by 6 p.m. i was on a flight to kentucky and for the next 2 days uh casey and i were at the courthouse in pikeville which is In um, the foothills of the um, Appalachian Mountains in eastern Kentucky, um, pouring through these uh, court records. We set up camp in this hospital because it was the only place that had a coffee shop, a Starbucks. Um, And we were just there for like seven hours um, looking through boxes and boxes of papers. And then this was like the Wednesday or Tuesday before Thanksgiving that year, and we just kept checking in and working with an editor over the Thanksgiving holiday to get some stories out. Um, you know, it's... Uh, Morning Rounds is, of course, journalism, but it's a separate type of journalism than this. This felt very, you know, something like out of the movie Spotlight or something. I felt very <laughs> like a real journalist, um, whatever that means, and it was it was really fun to to go uh, work on that. Apart from that, a theme of a lot of the stories that I have done is to try and give voice to folks who may not otherwise have their stories featured. So I tend to write about um, gender and racial disparities in academia. Um, I've written about uh, immigrants and who are interested in health careers. My very last story, which will be published tomorrow, is a Q and A with the founder of this group for undocumented immigrants who are um, interested in pursuing. Um, health professions here in the U.S. Um, so I'm particularly proud of those stories because it's nice to be able to highlight some of uh, their voices.
0: So speaking of journalism, as we mentioned, you are leaving us for Harvard's Neiman Journalism Lab. For people who you know know you from morning rounds, what, what can they look forward to from your work uh, from here on out once you're there?
3: Yeah, so that role is going to be quite different than what I've been doing for the past Decade as a science journalist, actually. Um, for folks who are not familiar with Neiman Journalism Lab, it's I like to describe it as journalism about journalism. It's journalism about, um, you know, the future of the news industry, innovations in the news industry. Um, so it's very different than what I've done so far. But for people who are interested in the media landscape, you know, how we cover news, best ways to keep the industry uh, alive. <laughs> I was going to say thriving, but alive. Um, uh, that, that's the kind of work that I will be doing. Um, it is a deputy editor position, so I won't be doing as much writing as I have in the past, but there will be opportunities for me to write so readers can stay tuned for some of those stories.
1: Well, it sounds like a really interesting opportunity, Shreda. Thank you so much again for all of your work here at STAT, and thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me. It's so great to be on Read Out Loud as part of my goodbye tour, if you will. I look forward to staying tuned to the podcast and seeing what other stories come from my ex-colleagues.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
0: Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
1: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose.
0: Our executive producer is Rick Burke.
1: And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether your employer is mandating vaccination. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: See you next week.